How many of you have followed football over the years? Many of you. Then you would know the name Tom Landry, wouldn't you? Tom Landry, former head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, is known among his peers and former team members as an encourager. He once said, my job as a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they really want to achieve. Let me read that to you again. He once said, my job as a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to achieve what they really want to achieve. And what is it that a football player wants to achieve? Well, a football player wants to achieve the championship. Every football player wants to earn his Super Bowl ring. But to get to the Super Bowl, you have to do a lot of things that you don't want to do. Some of them are grueling. Some of them are exhausting. Some of them are boring, repetitive. And that's what goes into winning the championship. You have to absorb a lot of pain before you can achieve the gain that you want. And the job of the coach then is to encourage the players to go through that, often at the top of his lungs, to do what they don't want to do and to keep on doing it until they come to achieve their highest goals. As we come to the second half, of John chapter 4, you find Jesus as an encourager in a similar way. He is, as it were, a coach in this section before us, but of course on a much, much higher level. He is a coach in the spiritual realm. He is sometimes blunt, he is sometimes confrontational, but mark it only because he loves people so much that He will give them what they truly need so that they can go on to be brought to the highest point of faith in life, and that is saving faith. Jesus, as we are about to see here in this passage, was not only the object of faith, but he was the encourager of faith. And that is really what this message is all about. Jesus Christ is the encourager of faith. Now, we have been working our way through this latter portion of John chapter 4, where we have seen so many rich and wonderful things. And in the last few messages, we've talked about the realization of our highest goal in life, which is the will of God. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of the Father and finish the work that he has sent me to do. And then we've talked about the motivation for the highest cause, which is, of course, the Great Commission. And we've looked in detail at all the things that go into motivating us to go out and give ourselves to the highest of all causes, the Great Commission. That leaves just a third thing that was in the original outline that I thought was going to be one message and is now really the thought for the third message, which is the cultivation of the highest faith. Here is the realization of the highest goal, the will of God. Here is the motivation for the highest cause, the Great Commission. And here in this chapter is the cultivation of the highest faith, which is saving faith based on the Word of God and faith in general that is based on the Word of God. Let's read over verses 46 down to verse 54. And this is where we're going to spend our time. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. You know, he's been in Samaria and we've looked at the incident there at the well. He came again to Cana of Galilee 
where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. They said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, everything in this passage is geared toward the cultivation of the highest faith in this man who comes to Jesus. And as we read our way through the passage and as you study it, and if you were to stare at it for long hours, there would be basically about four things that would begin to rise out of this text that relate to that cultivation of this high faith. The first thing that I see here in this passage that has become stronger and stronger on my heart the more I have thought about it is that the rich have trouble in life as well as the poor. The rich have trouble in life as well as the poor. Look at verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine and there was a certain nobleman. The original Greek is literally a king's man, a certain nobleman. He is a rich man. And here it says his son was sick at Capernaum. Now, with a man of this stature and this, the kind of means that would have been available to him, money, he would have used every angle possible, everything that money could buy to restore his son. His son was sick at Capernaum, and before it's over, he is crying out to the Lord saying, Come down before my child dies. I mean, his son is in dreadful condition. But his money could not buy him the solution to his problem. And that is because money is not almighty. Rich people have trouble as well as people that do not have a lot of money. And I think there is no more common error in life than to assume that just because you're rich, you don't really have too many cares in life. The reality of the matter is this, that people that have a lot of money are just as liable to sickness. They're just as liable to trouble. And on top of that, they have a hundred anxieties beside that people that don't have any money know nothing of. And... These are the things that we need to think about if you are one of those who are caught up in a quest in life to become rich. Remember this, the rich have trouble as well as the poor. It has been said that silks and satins often cover very heavy hearts and that dwellers in palaces often sleep more uneasily than those who live in small apartments. Gold and silver cannot lift a man out of the reach of trouble. 
They may shut out debt and rags, but they cannot shut out care and disease and death. You know, you look at the life of David, and when he was young, he was just out there tending sheep, and I, I tend to think that he was probably happier in many ways when he was just out tending the sheep as a poor shepherd lad than he was when he finally ascended to the throne and had all the wealth and everything else that came with being the king of Israel, governing over the 12 tribes. You see, if you are a servant of Jesus Christ, beware. If you think that money and a lot of it is going to solve all your problems, you would be better to think this way, that you really ought to pray for those that are really wealthy rather than envying them. Do you envy the wealthy or do you pray for them? See, the wealth that comes to a man in this life is not the solution to his problems. Jesus said in Luke 18.25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That statement is loaded with the reality that money doesn't solve all your problems. And when it comes to the greatest problem-solving cure in life, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, it can even be a hindrance to you. So here is a man who is very wealthy and he has trouble just like people that are not wealthy have. Don't allow yourself to make your whole life goal and dream becoming wealthy. Now, that is not to say that God isn't going to lead some of you in such a way that you will become wealthy. I know a number of extremely wealthy people in my life, and I'm not one of them. I've often wondered, you know, maybe, Lord, just for a day or so, you know, you could work it out that I could be extremely wealthy. Turn in your Bible, could you? Let's talk about this for a minute. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. It is worth pointing all of this out because, you know, in the area of the country in which we live, there is a great push and a great pressure on you, many of you, to become wealthy and to feel less than if you don't have what everybody else has. But God wants you to live in freedom from that kind of pressure. Now, if He wants to bless you with lots of money and make you a gozillionaire, that's up to Him. But let Him lead you into it. Don't make it the entire quest of your life. If He leads you in such a way that you're like that, fine. But notice the warning in 1 Timothy 6, 8. It says, but if we have food and clothing, Paul says, we will be content with that. Here's a man who understands how it all works. He goes on to say, People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It isn't the money itself that's evil, it's the love of it. And again, I know people that really are approaching the gazillionaire level and the money does not have them, they have the money. And they use it every chance they get to give back to God and to His work. It is the love of money that's the root of all evil. So you could be someone who has hardly any of it and want it so bad and think about it so constantly that you're trapped with the love of money maybe even more than someone who has a lot of it. You understand it's the love of it, it's not the money itself. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And then Paul says, Some people, eager for money, 
have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So here it is in the Bible. People do that. You just make sure you're not one of them. And you remember, if you're feeling pushed in that way and you're feeling less than in life because you don't have as much money as somebody else that you know, you remember this man in this chapter so desperate with cares and anxiety and his money could not do a thing about it for him. The rich have trouble as well as the poor. Let's go back then to John chapter 4 to verse 46. And there is another very important penetrating truth here. And that is this. Sickness and death comes to the young as well as the old. Sickness and death comes to the young as well as the old. Look at the verse. It says... Jesus came again to Galilee and then at the end and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Here in verse 49, the nobleman says, Sir, come down before my child dies. Now at first glance, it seems that the natural order of things is inverted here. Here is the older man and he is crying out to the Lord about his son who is dying. Seems like the whole thing is inverted. And I think that in our minds, perhaps that's how we think all the time. The lesson that is here, I think, is one that we are very slow to learn. And that is that we are apt to shut our eyes to the very plain facts that young people die as well as old people. And that as a matter of course, many people never live to be 50 or 40 for that matter, or some of them never even reach full adulthood. These are the plain facts of life, and it will help us in the long run if we can think like this. It isn't the reverse order of things to have an older man caring for his younger son that is dying. It happens. And the thing is, it happens more than we would like to admit and if we don't embrace this reality, then we are tremendously shocked when it comes our way. Do you realize that the first grave that was ever dug on earth was that of a young man? Do you realize that the first human being ever to die was a young man? That the first person who ever died was not a father but a son? You look in the Bible and you find out Abel died long before his father. You sweep through the Bible and you'll find that Aaron lost two of his sons in one stroke from the hand of God. You go on reading and you find that David, a man after God's own heart, lived long enough to see three of his sons buried. Keep on reading and studying and you'll find that Job was deprived of all of his children in one day's time. So these things, I believe, are recorded in the Bible for our learning. Why? So that we will be wise and never reckon on long life. Never think in our minds, well, if I just do thus and so, I will live to be 80 years old. I will live to be an octogenarian. If I just go to the health food store often enough, if I eat enough carrots and celery, if I cleanse often enough with aloe gel, you know, if I do all these different things in life, then I will certainly live to see 80 years, 90 years, 100 years old. 
It doesn't always work that way. We cannot reckon on living a long life. There is nothing in the Bible that would guarantee you or guarantee me that any of us will live a long life. Some of us will by the sovereignty of God and some of us will not. But we need to learn the lesson here that often the strongest and the fairest are cut down and hurried away in their youth. And it happens often so quickly while the old and the feeble seem to go on and on for years at the other end of the spectrum. This is a big part of life. I've studied the life of William Borden, such an impressive life, and he was the heir to the Borden dairy fortune. And even in 1914, he was worth millions, millions in his youth. He forsook it all, made the choice to not take over the family business, and he began to study and prepare himself to be a missionary in China. He studied hard and he trained, and finally he sailed to China set off for China anyway, and on the way he went through the Mediterranean and he stopped in Egypt. While he was in Egypt, he contracted cerebral spinal meningitis and he was dead in one month. He never reached China. He never became a missionary. He never spent a day on the mission field as he had intended in China. All that preparation, all that effort, and at the age of 25, he was gone. And it all happened in one month's time. Sick, a month, and gone at 25. What is the point of all this? The point is this. We cannot reckon on a long life, but what we can do, and the only true wise way to live, is to live always prepared to meet God. To live in such a way that we put off nothing that concerns eternity. And if we will live like that, ready to depart at any minute, then come what may, we will be ready. That is the lesson to learn. If we live that way, it matters little whether we die young or old. Joined to Jesus, we'll be safe in any event. Look at how fast the years are going by. From the time you left grammar school and went into the seventh grade and had more classes every day, your life has been picking up speed, hasn't it? Fourth grade, man, it went on forever. Fifth grade, the same thing. Sixth grade, on and on forever. Seventh grade, whoo, it went by like a blur. Ninth grade came and went. Tenth grade accelerating. By the twelfth grade it just started and ended all of a sudden. And you were launched out of high school and life has been a blur ever since. Right? And we tend to think, hey, you know, it's just going to go on and on and on and on and on. It could end for any one of us today. The young die as well as the old. The rich have trouble as well as the poor. These, I think, are penetrating practical lessons to learn from this section. Let me take you to another thought here in John 4. And that is, it is amazing what benefits affliction can confer upon a human being's soul. It is amazing the benefits that affliction can confer on the human soul. Look at verse 46 again. So Jesus, in John 4, verse 46, came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. If you look at this, you realize that this man was driven to Jesus Christ. He was driven by a deep anxiety. He watched his son 
contract that disease. He watched him as he no doubt began to burn up with fever or whatever it was that he had. And that deep anxiety drove him to Jesus Christ. Once there, in the presence of Jesus Christ, interacting with him, through the ministry of Jesus to him, he learned a lesson of priceless value. And in the end, look at verse 53. In the end, he himself believed and his whole household. That is an amazing thing to contemplate. Because if you remember, all of this hinged on his son's sickness. So that if his son, mark it, if his son had never been sick, this man, practically speaking, could have lived and died in his sin. Here is his son contracting his sickness. Here his anxiety is going through the roof. Now he's dying. The man is helpless. If that had never happened, perhaps this noble man with all of his money, this king's man, would have just gone on his way like we see so many of the king's men in the Bible never coming to faith. This man was driven to Christ by affliction. And he simply came looking for an answer to the affliction. He didn't come looking for salvation. He just came looking for an answer to the affliction. Know this, affliction is one of God's great medicines in life. It really is. God teaches us, I think, lessons by affliction that cannot be learned any other way. And He knows us and He knows the lessons we need to learn. Often by affliction, by sickness, by disease, God will draw us away from worldliness. Draw us away from sin that has entangled us. Why? To bring us up close to Him. It's one of God's great medicines. He often draws souls away from sin in the world through it that would have perished forever otherwise. Someone has well said that health is a great blessing. But sanctified disease is greater if it brings you to Christ. And think about it. I think all of us, you know, naturally, all of us naturally, we want to prosper naturally. I mean, that's a natural desire. We want to prosper in life and we want to be physically as comfortable as we can. I mean, we live in a fallen world. There's lots of discomfort. And there's nothing really wrong with that. But in reality, if you look at the issue, losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. You see, maybe right now for you, the worst thing in your life would be that you would prosper. And here you're sitting around going, God, why am I not prospering? Why do the wicked prosper and I do not? Well, maybe, just maybe, the worst thing that could happen to you right now is that you would prosper because maybe you've been so wayward from God. God's using this to pull you up short and drive you to Christ. Losses and crosses, far better for us if they lead us to Christ than prosperity and physical comfort. And I believe that in the last day, when men and women stand before God, countless thousands are going to say with this nobleman here in this passage, and David, as he said in Psalm 119 verse 71, David said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. I think this noble man's going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, it is good that I went through that, that my son nearly died. David knew after many years it was good that affliction had come his way because God used it. It's one of his great medicines. 
And I just want to caution you, beware of murmuring in times of trouble. Because often this is when God is working most. You need to settle it in your mind that when trouble comes your way, that there is a meaning in it. And yes, maybe even according to God's design, a message in it for you as well. In every sorrow that comes upon us, every trouble that comes upon us, don't murmur. Don't start pointing the finger at God. You don't know what you need for your soul. He knows. And the truth is, there are no lessons so useful as those that are learned in the school of affliction. Very, very important. What benefits affliction can confer upon the soul? And then there is something else that begins to really stand out to you as you look at this. Jesus' word is as good as his presence. You see, this entire incident leads to the cultivation of the highest faith. Here is a man who has trouble, though he's rich. Here is a man who has a young son in sickness on the verge of death. Here is a man who is driven in his affliction to come and cry out to Christ, but he only comes and cries out to him as a miracle worker that he's heard about. You see, Jesus has just come back from Jerusalem. He left town. He really wasn't received with that big of a welcome in his home area, Nazareth, Cana, the Galilean area, a prophet not being in honor in his own country. He left. He went up to Jerusalem. He did mighty deeds. He cleansed the temple. He preached. He did signs and wonders. And words spread about him. And he did it at the Passover when it was jammed with millions of pilgrims. Now, those that had come up from Galilee, they saw the crowds and they saw the signs and they saw the wonders and suddenly they looked at him in a different way than they ever had. You see, before he left town, he's just the carpenter's boy from Nazareth. He's nothing. Also, he did some magic trick in Cana. We know who he is. He's a nobody from a nowhere town called Nazareth. But he goes to Jerusalem at the crowded Passover, signs and wonders and mighty deeds, and everything changes. Now he's back. And everything has changed. And you see this man is driven to him, but only as a miracle worker. That is the only thing on his mind. He comes in desperation. So what we learn here is that Jesus' word is as good as his presence. That's the message he wants to give to this man. He wants to take him to the highest faith possible. So get it. He's driven to come with an imperfect faith that is based really on signs and wonders. He's like so many, you know, that, that rush into these uh, big arenas for the faith healers. They rush in and they crowd these places. You see them on television, don't you? They all have kind of a similar look. And they rush in to these places because they're obsessed with the outward. They're obsessed with seeing God work outwardly. They're obsessed with this kind of thing. Show me and I'll believe. That's what they're obsessed with. And the world is full of people like that. That's why these guys have such a big following. I mean, they don't pastor them. They don't really do anything for them other than give them a sideshow with, a, you know, a lot of stuff that goes on. Why are those things packed? Because people have a bent toward seeing God do something outwardly. Oh, if I could just see God do this, then I would believe. Here comes this man. He's got a problem. 
He's heard about how Jesus has done all these outward things. He is driven to come with an imperfect faith based on signs and wonders. And from Jesus' perspective, that's the lowest kind of faith of all. Next time you turn on your television set and you watch one of these big things going on, remind yourself this whole event is based on the lowest kind of faith of all. Because what Jesus is looking for is faith based on His Word. That will take Him at His Word, whether there's a sign or a wonder or not, and move out. Look at how it unfolds. John 4, verse 46 again. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where He made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now watch our Lord's remark. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, some of us are a little more touchy-feely than others. Right? Isn't that right? For the touchy-feeling section of our family here at church, that's probably very offensive to you. You probably read that. Here is this poor man in desperation. His son is on the verge of death. Jesus turns around. He says, you know, the problem with you people is if you don't see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. Oh, how unkind, how uncaring. The man's in desperation, Lord. How can you speak to him like that? Oh, I'm stumbled. Those of you that are a little more on the rough and tough side, read that and go, yeah, preach it, Lord, let them have it. <laughs> now the real question is, what is this all about? Why? I mean, this poor guy, he is in desperation. And Jesus said to him, unless you people. Now you have to see that. He's addressing him, but he's going beyond him. He said to him, unless, now he goes beyond, and he addresses the whole crowd, you people. In other words, you know what? You people, all in general, you people in this crowd have a problem. And that is unless you see me do signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. You're more concerned about what I can do outwardly in terms of fixing up this and fixing up that. You're missing the whole point about me. There's something about me you've got to learn and it's not signs and wonders so much as it is the fact that I'm God and the power of my word. So he's not being cruel to this man. I mean, we go on, we see he wants to heal his son. He's not being cruel. But he is trying to take the man and encourage him to the highest point of all, which is saving faith. This man comes with no concern for his soul. He comes out of desperation, driven, forced to the feet of Jesus because of the need of his son. His soul isn't even the issue. Jesus wants to heal his son. But what he really wants to do above and beyond that is save the man's soul and send him back in such a way that his household can come to salvation as well. It's a very important thing to see. See, there's a form of faith that comes from seeing outward signs and wonders, but it is not the highest faith. John Huss, have you heard his name ever? John Huss was a forerunner of the Protestant Reformation and he used to say, those who need miracles are men of little faith. It's kind of a saying he had in his life. You know what happened to him? 
They eventually took him out and burned him alive because he would not deny the faith that he had that was based on the word of God alone. That's how strong his faith was. He was a man who lived at the highest level of faith, faith in the word of God alone. Let the signs and wonders follow as they may. I place my faith in God's word first and foremost. I will trust the word of God, though you burn me alive, I will not deny him. He had every right to say those who need miracles are men of little faith. When he was burnt alive and didn't deny Christ, he proved what kind of faith he had. John 4, 48, Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. He's saying that is not the kind of faith I'm looking for. And we're so often like that, aren't we? Oh, Lord, just show me and I'll believe. Now, Lord, I'm having trouble. Uh, I've been backslidden, Lord. If you just show me some stuff. I mean, God, do some mighty things and it'll snap me right out of it. Lord, you, you... Please, just show me and I'll believe. Jesus wants us to believe and then He wants to show us a lot of things that will follow on after that belief. The man, of course, he is so desperate. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't stop and say, Oh Lord, you don't understand. Uh, You know, I'm not a bad guy after all. And hey, you know, I I go to the synagogue occasionally and I'm sort of the religious type and... uh, He's so desperate about his son, he just takes in what Jesus says and then gets back to the point. He says in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. Soaks it all in and then comes back with his need. He is driven to come with an imperfect faith based on signs and wonders. He has some kind of faith. But it isn't the faith that Jesus wants to see in him and that must be there to save his soul. After being driven to come with an imperfect faith based on signs and wonders, I love this, he is encouraged to leave with a high faith based on Christ's word. And this is the coaching work of Jesus Christ to coach men and draw men into salvation. What does Jesus do? He puts him in a situation which encourages him to be drawn up to the highest level of faith. He forces him, as it were. Look at verse 50. He's saying, Lord, come down. Lord, come to my house. Lord, you must come. Lord, this is the way it's going to have to work if my son is going to live. Jesus just listens to all that and he just comes back. He says, go your way, your son lives. I'm not coming. Go your way, your son lives. Well, at this point, something is happening inside of the man. So the man, noticed, believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went his way. The NIV says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. I like that. He just took him at his word. Well, this changes everything. This is not what he expected. Jesus takes control of the situation. He encourages the man into the faith that he is after, And what is faith after all but obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ? He took Jesus at his word and he departed. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. That's faith. It involves obedience. It has been said that faith is self-surrender to the great physician. A leaving of our case in his hands. But it is also the taking of his prescriptions and the active following of his directions. That's what this man did. You may go, your son lives. He took Jesus at his word. Now, 
Here he is moving from the lowest kind of faith based on signs and wonders to the highest kind of faith based on the Word of God. But let me ask you a question. As he left, do you think that there was any anxiety in his mind? Do you think he had any questions in his mind? Now, he's going now in faith on the Word of God. What do you think? I mean, the guy's human after all, right? He's like you. I tend to think that he still had some questions and some anxiety, but his feet are moving in faith. Faith is obedience to the Word of God. You know, through the years, the reason I bring this up is because through the years I have thought at different times that if I'm really walking in faith, I'm not going to have any doubts. I won't have any questions. There won't be any fears. That it'll just be all confidence. But you know what? After all, I'm human like you, like this man. I tend to think he left in faith and believing this is a new thing for him. But along the way, he's wondering. True faith does not mean an absence of questioning. Any more than true courage means an absence of fear. Courage is the will to act in a positive, proactive way despite your fears, right? Faith is the will to act in a positive, proactive way despite your uncertain feelings. The man acted. He did what Jesus told him to do. And though he was uncertain, he obeyed the word of Jesus. Why? Because faith is not what you feel so much as faith is what you do. Faith is obedience. Come down. Go your way. I'm not coming. Your son lives. The man believed him. He turned around and he started walking or riding whatever it was home. Now, if you watch closely, you will immediately discover here that the steps of faith fall in a seeming void, but they find solid rock underneath. Look at verse 51. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Now we get the insight into the fact that he still had some questions and some anxiety. And he inquired of them the hour when he got better. Well, what time did he get better? I love this. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. He didn't start getting better. He went from a moment of time of dying to being absolutely well. It left him. He didn't slowly get better over a few hours. He was suddenly healed in a moment of time. Well, this is great. Now the guy's excited. So verse 53, the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself, here's the whole point. He himself believed and his whole household. You see, the moment he left Jesus, taking him at his word, he was on the high road to high saving faith, believing on Christ at his word. By the time he gets home and he sees the confirmation of that kind of belief, signs and wonders following his belief, this man is so effusive with his newfound faith in Christ as God who speaks a sentence and power rushes forth from the sentence, even in a place where he is not, he finds that the word of God is as good as his presence. And he is so effusive in his belief that he leads his entire household to Christ. He has been coached all the way up to the highest form of faith. Faith based on signs and wonders. It's faith, but it's the low form of faith. Faith based on the word of God 
is the highest form of faith. And to me, there is enormous comfort here. You know why? Because this incident gives such great value to every promise of mercy, of grace, of peace that ever fell from the lips of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, I look at this and I realize that if I place my faith in Christ's word, that's the highest form of faith, and I have placed at the same time my feet on spiritual solid rock. So that Jesus said in John six sixty three, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. How about you? What kind of faith do you have? Do you rush to every faith healer that comes to town? Do you come in with nothing on your mind but your anxiety and your need? Are you always saying, oh God, show me and I'll believe? Or have you come to the high faith that says, Lord, speak the word, I'll stand on it. Have you come to discover that these promises on these pages, the promises in the red writing as well as in the black, that they're all good, that the word of Jesus is as good as if he was here physically himself present. You see, here's the thing. God knows the best way to minister to your problem. You know that? Here this man comes to Jesus and he learns to trust him at his word. He comes and he has his way to solve the problem, right? You must come to my house. Jesus says, I'll solve the problem, but I'll solve it my way. You go back to your house, the problem's solved. You believe my word about it. We have got to learn how to trust God even when His way seems harsh and when His way doesn't go our way. The noble man said, Sir, come down, my child dies. Jesus said, Go your way, your son lived. And the man believed the word. And he also found out that God knows how to solve his problems better than he does. And one other thing I want to leave you here in closing God knows the best way to bring a man to saving faith. Now this may rattle some of you theological giants, but listen to this. This man came to Christ to speak with Christ because his son was dying. Not because he felt the need in his own soul for salvation, but because his son was dying. There are those that will say, you know, if you're going to preach the gospel right, you have to do it this and this and this and this and this and this and this has to be in there if a man's going to be saved. You've got to preach the law first, you've got to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this, and you have to do it that way every time. What happened here? God brings people to himself in different ways. After all, it's the Holy Spirit that quickens a man's heart. This man comes because he has a need. There was a point in my life, in my ministry, where I thought it was wrong to preach to people that if you have a need, Jesus can meet that need. I realize, looking at this, the only reason the man came is because he had this need, unrelated to his salvation. But once he began to talk to Jesus about his need, Jesus, the great encourager of faith, began to coach him around and away from his original agenda. And the next thing you know, the man goes away believing the word of God and he believes and is saved in his whole house. All of that is to say, allow God to be God. To draw in souls through the preaching of his word the way he wants to. And then allow yourself to be led in your witnessing 
the way that God wants to lead you, not the way you have it all figured out. And that is not to discount in any way a good, clean, sound, systematic theology. And that is not to discount in any way an effort to preach the full gospel. But to say this, God must lead you. God must lead you. Here a man comes simply out of affliction, and he goes away and he gets saved by the word of God. Let God lead you. Well, there's a lot here, isn't there? It's wonderful. I think this is just one of the most wonderful accounts in the Gospels. There's so much here for me. We're going to have a word of prayer and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. There is so much to come to Him with in terms of gratitude in our own hearts. Let's pray. Father, You are so wise and so powerful and Your Word is so true. Lord, we all love to see You work in an outward way and we will freely admit that. We also see from the truth here in this passage that if our faith is only based on that, it's the low form of faith. Bring us each one, Lord, to the place where we believe in your word, where we take you at your word. And then, as we step out in obedience, you will meet us in the way and manifest yourself and your power and your faithfulness in such a manner that it will be above and beyond what we could have ever asked or prayed or even thought. God, help us to understand that this is the high road to the life of power and glory. And we will be careful to give you the glory for it. As we see this change in our thinking and in our attitude and our faith and in our obedience and in the way we share Christ, as we understand you more fully, we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.